Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Calvin. And I'm Pat. And this is Get Off My World, a Doctor Who podcast. We're three guys and the occasional guest who love Doctor Who and do our best to love the new series, too. We'll take you through five rounds, wrap it, and get down to the nitty-gritty of what's good about Doctor Who and what's sometimes not so good. Uh, And with us today is our special guest, Brian Schomburg. He is a senior design manager at Fantasy Flight Games. Hey, everybody. He's also a Hi, big, Brian. fat geek. Big. Huge. It, figuratively. We won't. <laughs> imagine them however you'd like, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> uh, we're going to start off today as we always start each podcast with round one, temporal grace. Something that makes us happy uh, that we have recently encountered in the world of Doctor Who. Kelvin? I was very pleased to find out that uh, Peter Capaldi is drawing sketches for fans at conventions. The only one I saw was like some sort of weird, like cartoony self-portrait slash Twelfth Doctor, where he's kind of like skipping along uh, tiny asteroids in like a Saturn's rings type environment. We'll post to it. It's it's actually really cool. Even if you didn't yeah. know it was Peter Capaldi who yeah. actually drew it, it's still a very yeah. awesome sketch. Capaldi might be the most talented actor ever to play the Doctor because he's also a musician and he's an artist. Yeah, I was going to say, that guy got all the good stuff. I know. That's a little unfair. I know. He an Academy Award. For directing. For directing. Yeah. He did? What? what? When? Yeah. For, uh, it's, I'm surprised uh, I don't know this. Fra- it's Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. I've seen it. It's very good. So, essentially, he is slumming it on Doctor Who. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Well, I would, for my temporal grace, like to draw your attention to a British actor, director, and writer named Nicholas Pegg. So uh, the name might sound familiar because he's been a Dalek in many, many episodes of the new Doctor Who. Going, he was the Dalek in ba- he was in Bad Wolf. He's all the way up to the Witches Familiar. He's been in many, many audio plays for Big Finish. He's written several, uh, The Spectre of Lanyon Moore, for example, and um, he's all over the Doctor Who DVD extras. But more importantly, he's a world expert on David Bowie. So I want to read you. <laughs> Here it comes. So I want to read you a long paragraph from his amazingly comprehensive book, The Complete David Bowie, which okay. discusses every single song, album, tour, and TV appearance of Bowie up to a few years ago. So, okay, by by long paragraph, are we talking like? Ayn Rand long? (laughs) Proustian in length. Okay, okay. During an interview for Rolling Stone in November 1973, Bowie launched into a disquisition on the song's place in his planned Ziggy Stardust stage production. 
Quote, the end comes when the infinites arrive. They really are a black hole, but I've made them people because it would be very hard to explain a black hole on stage. <laughs> Ziggy is advised in a dream by the infinites to write the coming of a Starman, so he writes Starman, which is the first news of hope that the people have heard, so they latch onto it immediately. The Starmen that he is talking about are called the infinites, and they are black hole jumpers. Ziggy has been talking about this amazing spaceman who will be coming down to save the Earth. They arrive somewhere in Greenwich Village. Bowie's affinity with homegrown science fiction permeates much of his work, and he has always enjoyed this Quatermass-style juxtaposition of the fantastic with the banal, of the mystical with the homely, of black holes with Greenwich Village. Remarkably, this account of black hole jumping and of Ziggy's ultimate fate, quote, when the infinites arrive, they take bits of Ziggy to make themselves real because in their original state they are antimatter and cannot exist in our world, is identical to the storyline of the BBC's 10th anniversary Doctor Who special, The Three Doctors, a high-profile reunion of the show's lead actors which had been broadcast a few months earlier while Bowie was in London recording Aladdin Sane. <laughs> wow. Well-researched, Pat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. So, Brian, what's your happy Doctor Who thing? I am a huge lover of board games, and I have recently discovered that, uh, I believe it was uh, Toy Fair this year, a company called Gale Force 9 announced a Doctor Who game. So if you're like me and you like games in Doctor Who, you've been sad for decades, just crying. And this game looks to be, I mean, this is just some promotional material, but it looks to be pretty awesome. Uh, I've got some of their marketing copy here. Ooh. <laughs> Ever wanted to be the Doctor? Travel in time and space, meet companions, and have adventures? In Doctor Who, Time of the Daleks, you do just that with every player picking a doctor and trying to thwart the Dalek's master plan of erasing the doctor from history. Do you have what it takes to fill the Time Lord's shoes? Um, I think it's going to come out this summer, and it's going to be, you sit down and play various doctors. If anybody's ever looked at most of the licensed direct that's Doctor Who, it's like, hey, look, we're all Matt Smith. And right. we roll and move around the board. This is like, okay, you're Colin Baker, you're Tom Baker, um, I'm Paul McGann, and we all work together to stop the Daleks on the board. And I'm like... Super excited about it. So that's my happy. I think we're finally going to get a good board game for Doctor Who. Might not be great, but I'll settle for good. Good, good would be an improvement. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The Martin Wallace card game from a few years ago is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's a fun card game that has a Doctor Who theme to it. Exactly. And I'm not even, the, the theme's a little pasted on for me. Like, that yeah. could be anything. Like, you're like, what? River Song can beat a Centauran? Or like, some of the matchups and stuff. I just, this, this seems a little more cohesive and kind of like tightly knit around the Doctor Who universe. So I'm like, I'm super excited for that. Absolutely. And it can't help but be better than the crummy 1980s. It's unspeakable. <laughs> I, I, I have a copy in the other room, but we won't be playing They're it all pretty bad, right? Yeah. Well, guys, one of the things I've recently noticed about myself is that Doctor Who has so permeated my brain, especially doing this <laughs> podcast, that I realize I can't see the words doctor or who, or hear them said without my brain going to Doctor Who. Um, for example, I recently called to make an appointment for a physical, and they asked me, uh, do you have a doctor you'd like to see? Immediately, <laughs> I was going through the roster, going, who, who, who would it be? <laughs> I mean, me. Who, which is the doctor less likely to have cold hands? You yeah, know? I, yeah. Uh, I settled on Joanna Lumley doctor, but my insurance doesn't cover out-of-canon doctors, is what I found out. I think so. the sixth doctor would have the worst bedside manner, probably. Yeah, or even, I saw today at, at work, I work in a grocery store, and there was an ad 
before, whole chickens were on sale. And I did not see the L-E. I just saw who chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then you start dressing them up like the various doctors. <laughs> Little bow ties. <laughs> there is something really Ra- wrong. Wrapping a scarf around a whole fryer and going like, hey, it's Tom Baker! <laughs> and I saw an article on the internet that combines Doctor and Who. So I'm like, this has to be about Doctor Who. It's like, Doctor Who denies shaken baby syndrome. And I'm like, Doctor Who denies shaken baby syndrome? We're going to talk about this in the podcast. I think I saw that on, on, on Facebook, and it was really startling to read that. <laughs> like, like, I immediately thought there was, like, like, young mothers who are big fans of Doctor Who, and they're holding their baby, and they're suddenly so excited by what's happening in the episode. They're like, whoa! And they're like... <laughs> shaking their baby without being aware of it. I see that every so often. I, I think I might have stumbled across one of those British tabloids, you know, that when they're kind yes. of snarky behavior will call an actor by their character name. Mm-hmm. So it'll be like, Doctor Who, sex scandal. Or whatever. <laughs> but it was like, oh my God, did Peter Capaldi deny that there was such a thing as shaking baby syndrome? <laughs> So for round two on this podcast, we're going to return to something we did a few weeks ago with our guest, Matt Kesson, and we're going to give Brian Schomburg the mind probe. No, not the mind probe. Yes, yes the mind probe. Uh, Brian, you're... You love that. <laughs> Never gets old. Brian, you're seated here at my dining room table. Why are you here? Why are you going to talk to us about Doctor Who? My, my, my Doctor Who history does not go nearly as deep as you guys. Basically, well, obviously. I mean, well, yeah, that's tough to compare. But I've been a very kind of casual on and off. Like, I, I experienced it, as many people do, for the first time in the area, kind of like on PBS. But I grew up without a television, so I could only watch Doctor Who when I was doing, like, babysitting jobs and things. So I would catch, like, one episode of a serial, and then, like, months later, I'd catch another one. I think I, I remember seeing part of Horror of Fang Rock. Couldn't even tell you what part. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing part of Legopolis with The Watcher, which confused the hell out of me, because I'm yeah. like, what is going on in this show? And I really only knew about Tom Baker and Peter Davidson for ages. It wasn't until... Sometime in college, I I was visiting a friend at home over the summer, and he had a picture tacked up on the wall of Colin Baker. And I said, who the hell's that? It was like a sign thing he got on account. I'm like, who the hell's that? He's like, that's Doctor Who. And I did not believe him, okay? There's no internet. Like, I just Mm -hmm. walk away like, that guy's crazy. That's not Doctor Who. I I know. But um, eventually, 1996 rolls around. Somehow I catch the TV movie. That kind of sticks in my brain a little bit. Or or maybe I saw it on, uh, like, a bootleg VHS tape or something later. It's not until 2005 when the new show comes out, and I'm like, holy shit, I think this is that crazy old show that used to be on with the monsters and <laughs> And I started watching, and I immediately fell in love and went back and tried to watch all the rest of Doctor Who. Did you succeed? I have not quite succeeded. <laughs> I am damn close. I am proud to say I've been saving the best for last. I've got some Tom Baker to watch and a few Pertwee episodes. Well, and now you work in a nerdy industry. Uh, yes, yes. I've, I've worked in a nerdy industry almost my entire, like, actual career, if you can call it that. Um, I got out of college, and I was a pretty big gamer, loved role-playing games, and I fell in with a company called West End Games out in Pennsylvania for a few years. Oh, yeah. uh, they had Star Wars license, and Indiana Jones, Paranoia. Oh, yeah. Um, I contributed to Paranoia. I'm not very proud of it. It's kind of some bad stuff, but... <laughs> Which one? Oh, no, we don't want to go into that I've now. got it on the shelf, I'm sure. <laughs> There's troubleshooters. Troubleshooters were all based off um, 
fringe comic book characters, they go to First Avenue, basically, and meet the Muppets. <laughs> like, that's, that's my... It's a terrible adventure. It's awful. I put in finger puppets that you could... It sounds awesome. It's, <laughs> it's not very good. So, back at West End, they didn't pay us a lot, but they would happily let us write up freelance contracts for writing and art. And so I would just, like, go crazy, and in the evenings I would go just write terrible things and draw terrible things and put them in the book and get money. So can't really speak for the quality of any of that stuff. But anyway, they, they bankrupted after five years, and I moved back to here, which is where I'm originally from, the uh, Midwest, and I found another game company just kind of getting rolling, which was called Fantasy Flight Games, and this is 1999. They've been around a year or two. They're a company of three people at that point. I've become the fourth person, and uh, they kind of like fell into a lot of really great things. Lord of the Rings, currently Star Wars, and just keep growing and growing and growing. They're now one of the larger game companies in kind of the hobby game industry, and I'm happy to be the graphic design manager there, uh, where I oversee a whole pool of really talented people who uh, make those games look awesome. Yep. No Doctor Who license. Oh, I wish. That would be... <laughs> I, I, I will go on record saying I have many times suggested we get that license over the <laughs> decade plus that I've worked there, and it's... Uh, Never really worked out. Plenty of other stuff. Game of Thrones. Yes. Uh, Call of Cthulhu. Yep. Star Wars. Now. Star Wars. Your big one. Yep. Exactly. And the, I think one of the secrets of Fantasy Flight is that they kind of fall into these licenses before they actually become hot. So they had the Game of Thrones license around, I want to say, 2002. <laughs> and honestly, I worked there for at least five years before I even sat down and read the books. All my employees, all, all the rest of the staff are like, oh my God, you got to read these. They're pretty interesting books. I'm like, they're really thick. He's not even <laughs> writing them. Like, I can just check off why I'm not going to read these. Um, of course, I sat down and watched the first episode or two of the show, and I'm like, oh, I got to go read those. Those are This is fantastic. Yeah. But, um, you know, Lord of the Rings, they got that license right before, I think, uh, the movies took off as well. Um, so they, they, they've kind of fallen into some really lucky IP stuff. Star Wars, they got that a couple of years before. You know, we know that there's going to be a big Force Awaken thing and stuff, and now Star Wars couldn't be huger. They, they make a lot of clever decisions and really good strategies as well, but I have to say one of their secrets is just having the right license at the right time, and you can't, you can't really predict that stuff. So... Off the top of your head, what is your favorite episode of Doctor Who and your least favorite so that people listening to this can gauge whether or not your opinion has any merit to them? Okay. <laughs> My favorite episode of Doctor Who, I couldn't tell you the title, but I believe it's Matt Smith's first episode. Now, before everybody groans and cries, like, nope, no, it's no, no. a solid episode. I 11th love hour. the hell out of that episode. The 11th hour? I like the mm -hmm. 11th hour a lot, yeah. Um, I prefer the 12th hour. <laughs> My least favorite episode, I would have to say it's something during the Hartnell era because the pacing is so abysmal. I remember there was one serial I watched where I think one entire episode could be thrown out and you wouldn't even know it was missing. It's a hallmark of the era. Um, You're going to have to give us a lot it's... more information to figure out. <laughs> I realize that. Galaxy 4. Pretty broad. But I think that, that I don't, I love Doctor Who and I love the ideas in Doctor Who and, it, and I love that it has this massive history. The problem is that the, the, the early years are just not the, the contemporary audience is just not going to get it. You really got to have a love of kind of all the crazy weirdness that kind of sprinkled in there and, and kind of that powers you through the, the long, long gaps. Man, I guess if I had to pick a bad episode for some other reason, like it's just literally terrible, Kevin's Moon Dragon rant really pops <laughs> to the floor. Like I, I, I'm with him there. Like I just that was ludicrous, and I know there's so much ludicrous in Doctor Who, but in in recent times, that that would be my black spot. And why? Why? Yeah. 
<laughs> no, sure, sure. Kelvin, you're starting a cult. <laughs> you have acolytes. Maybe they the size of the hatched out colors. It was tough, yeah. Brian, if you were to cast any rock star or rock band on oh. Doctor Who from 1963 to the present day, who would it be? Interesting. Musician doesn't have to be a rock star necessarily. Okay, no, no, we'll go with rock stars. All right. I think it's time to give the Beatles their their spot back in. Like, they, they kind of were robbed. They were going to be on an episode, from what I understand. Then they get to pop up in, like, the, the time viewer the, for, like, yep, the a couple chase. seconds. Mm -hmm. And then due to licensing restrictions, that's just thrown out. So, like, I don't think anyone's ever going to see that again, except for maybe on Daily Motion or, like, one of those kind of YouTube sort of things. You're like, oh, here's that one clip, right? And so I'd love, I mean, they're. Some are dead, so we're not going to really get that. But right, like that, that's okay. It's, yeah. Okay. Uh, Hartnell meet them and be all curmudgeony, and then they're actually turn out to be aliens or something. Of course, like that's <laughs> they got to be aliens, right? Like, and uh, so there. That, that's my answer. We'll get the Beatles back in there. Excellent. Well, that, they they had intended to get them on there, and in the end, they just yeah. used that uh, that clip of uh, Ticket to Ride. I'd like to see him as Vord. Yeah, like, <laughs> that'd be awesome. You just want to see Ringo in that rubber suit again. <laughs> squeezed into that thing. Well, if we want to make him like not have dignity, I'll Zarbies or something, Zarbies. right? Like that yeah. Zarbies. <laughs> Monoptero would be pretty great. Uh, John and Paul keep arguing about which one gets to be the ass end of the Zarbies. <laughs> as a design person... What would you say is like your favorite Doctor Who episode, just like for design? That's a good question. I, I think yeah. that it might come up a little bit later, but actually, it's one of the reasons I kind of am crazy in love with the 1996 movie is because there's some design stuff done there that I want to. I don't know who did it, but I want to applaud their choices. For me, that TARDIS and that set, like that, that already elevates that to a level that your average kind of thing doesn't. Somebody had the vision to be like, oh my God. You know, this time machine can be anything in any size and bigger on the inside. Let's make it really freaking big on the inside, like just gigantic. And it's it's wonderful. It's like a basketball court sized, uh, yeah. like waiting room, and he's got chairs and a fireplace and candles everywhere. Like, it's awesome. Love that episode for that reason. He's got bats and dried leaves. <laughs> well, I don't know what's up with the dried leaves. Honestly, that's I can live with. I just like imagining him with a leaf blower going into the cloister room and being. Yeah, the cloister room in the original series had vines, so I suppose they died at some point. And yeah. That's why. Interesting. Oh, thanks for smoothing over that. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to be up all night. <laughs> well, I think that's a good uh, point to segue into uh, the randomizer <laughs> for today, which uh, is nothing less than the 1996 TV movie that appeared on American television on the Fox network and is also sometimes known as the enemy within although I don't personally call it that because that makes me think of the the evil Kirk episode of Star Trek but <laughs> we should point out that it was not selected randomly for this episode but was rather chosen by guest Brian Schomburg yeah because I love it so it's just fantastic actually when I started listening to your podcast and you guys would have people pick episodes and things, I was like, it would be fascinating if they discussed the 1996 movie. Because, <laughs> again, my, my knowledge of, like, nobody ever really talks about that. Unbeknownst to me that it's been chewed to pieces, but uh, I think there's so many cool things about this movie. It might not be the best Doctor Who story. Okay, it's not. But um, there's a lot of really amazing things in it that carry over into New Who uh, that are also elements I love. So I, I really wanted to discuss this a little bit. 
I would certainly agree with Brian that I think it is underrated, while definitely not a great episode. Um, the, the bad seems to outweigh in most people's minds, and they don't really address what I think are some of the really strong points in it. The regeneration sequence is arguably one of my favorites. The first like oh, 20 minutes before any sort of plot kicks in, because most of the plot makes no sense whatsoever. Absolutely. Uh, but the first 20 minutes, um, when I first saw it, I was just in love with. And I think because I loved the idea of the Dr. Regenerating from medical malpractice. <laughs> I just think it's the greatest idea ever. Um, at the time, I also really liked the idea of the mastermind seventh doctor just do 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 walking into a hail of gunfire. Yep. <laughs> it seemed like a nice, ironic way for him to go. I, I loved the actual death scene on the operating table. Yeah. I thought it was actually pretty intense. It, it seemed more intense in 1996 uh, before the new series. Uh, watching it now doesn't seem quite as gut-wrenching, but I love that bit. I love a lot of Paul McGann stuff. Love the design. There's so much to talk about. Where do we start? Yeah. Well, right. well, yeah, I'm certainly not going to piss all over this movie. No, no. <laughs> uh, I always felt it got kind of a bad yeah, rap. Yeah, you know, I when mean. it was broadcast in 1996, I was so far removed from Doctor Who fandom. I hadn't read any of the books at that point. I hadn't watched the show since uh, several years before it went off the air, um, except for little bits and pieces here and there. I was only mildly interested in it coming back, and I watched half of it, and then I had to go somewhere, and then I never saw the end of it and for, until many, many, many years later. I think I borrowed it from you. Josh, and um, watching it again today before this uh, podcast, I was pleasantly surprised. There's plenty of bad things there, but I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Brian. There's lots of good stuff. This is still my favorite TARDIS interior of any Doctor Who. Uh, I love that yeah. Sylvester McCoy just open plan TARDIS. Yes. <laughs> there. The cloister room is great. It actually has cloisters, for one thing, which <laughs> I'm not sure that the old series did, or at least not very many of them. It, it, it's really gothic. I, I hate saying it this way, but it's sort of steampunk before steampunk was a thing. The console, for sure. Yeah. You know, it, it, everything looks like it was made in the Victorian era for some reason. And, but yeah, I mean, I kind of like the whole idea of the, you know, the TARDIS being sort of like the old curiosity shop or something, where it's just <laughs> a collection of oddities laying around. And, you know, it's not a spaceship so much as like a building that somehow moves its door around. I've always liked the idea locations. that when the this is headcanon, but you know, when the TARDIS gets blown up or destroyed uh, or damaged in some way, it just repairs itself out of the closest little bit of material that's vaguely appropriate for mm -hmm. it. So when the console blows up and, oh, there's a 1980s keyboard floating around, yeah. there's an old typewriter, it just kind of <laughs> builds Absorbed itself it in. into mm -hmm. it. Uh, and this certainly looks like it's been doing that for a thousand years, traveling around with Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. Whether it was intentional or not, I like how the design in different ways fits the seventh doctor because he's yeah. the darker manipulative doctor and this sort of gothic quality fits that character but when he regenerates it also has a romantic quality a Jules Verne quality to it all that matches in a completely different way Paul McGann's doctor yep. yeah the design is good uh, I think people are generally fond of Paul McGann that might be um might be looking backward now through years of audios, uh, but I, I think he's pretty good here. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. I, I I liked him right away. I liked yeah. him except for his hair. 
Like I really never really? liked that. It's character. out of control. Oh, they had to build him a whole bunch of wigs, which was apparently a big budget busting thing because it, it <laughs> you know, this blows my mind, but it's like ten thousand dollars per wig. Ah, or what? something. That that wig does not look like it's worth ten thousand dollars. And and you know, they made like fifteen of them or something, you know, because of, they get beat up easy and Watching it now, though, in that wig with that flowing hair, he's a shorter man, and he's running around after the more barefoot. And he, the whole time, he just looks like a hobbit to me now. <laughs> Talking I about stop second breakfast. Yeah. And <laughs> well, he, he has some great doctor moments, too, in here uh, uh, that I, I love. I love when he pulls the gun from the cop and says, stop or I'll shoot myself. Yeah, yeah fantastic. It's a great fantastic. doctor moment. Although, there's a part of me that would love to see an alternate timeline in which the Eighth Doctor chose the Nixon mask as his costume <laughs> <laughs> and traveled with Pete the Wacky mor- <laughs> Morgue Worker. <laughs> I would be into that. Um, so Pete, is he the one in the movie? I didn't remember his name. The, his name's Pete the, the guy oh. who goes, oh God, and faints. Totally take that guy in the TARDIS for a ride. Oh yeah, and every time he'd be, hey Pete, here are the Daleks. <laughs> and he'd fall over. <laughs> to be like the shortest adventures ever. <laughs> I, I, I do like the TV movie a lot more than conventional Whovian wisdom does. I will say that as a way of introducing the Doctor to an American audience, it's kind of terrible. I think you have to know a lot about Doctor Who for mm-hmm. any of this to figure out. Like, it just it starts with the seventh Doctor. There's regeneration. They don't really ex- explain what regeneration is so much. They have the voiceover. They try to, but it's very vague. We have yeah. so many lies. They don't, you, they don't explain, really explain who the Master is. There's kind of a, a, a voice cameo of the Daleks. You know, it's like it's like it expects you to know all the stuff about Doctor Who, and then just kind of has a the kind of a weirdly small scale confrontation between the Doctor and the Master. My understanding is is that it took so long to get this project off the ground, and it was in so many different forms before it got there that the end result was this crazy collaboration between Fox and the BBC and who knows how many millions of different scripts by different people over the years. There's an entire book by Philip Siegel and and Gary Russell called Regeneration, which talks about the process that made this movie happen in the first place. I haven't read it, but apparently it was a grueling thing for all, all concerned. And so the end result is this weird compromise where you've got plenty of great fan service. Uh, Sylvester is there. Yeah. Um, you've got the master, and you've got references to things like the Eye of Harmony and the Cloister Room. and Lots of Fourth Doctor grabs. Yeah, it's deep canon. Yeah. Uh, but at the same yeah. time, he's half human on his mother's side. And <laughs> and humans can open the Eye of Harmony. And Yeah, the second half of it just doesn't make any sense. Not even from a, a Doctor Who canon point of view, not in an angry nerd sort of way, but just mm-hmm. it's Incoherent toward the end. I don't even know what the stakes are. I don't even know what's going on in the last thirty minutes. Uh, well, it's the Hellmouth. <laughs> <laughs> the the elephant in the room is Eric Roberts, who I just think gives one of the most bizarre performances I've ever seen in the history of Doctor Who. I love it so much. I, I'm okay. But, well, when you get with a, uh, it's entertaining, but you have to admit he's playing a different character in every scene. There's no, there's no through line. One scene he's Arnold Schwarzenegger as the master, talking in a monotone voice. Then in like in the ambulance, he's Oliver Hardy when he's like correcting the grammar. He even gives a little like a little head nod to her, and then it makes absolutely. And then at the end, he's Liberace. He's just like he's just like I'm going to do this in every there's single way like possible. Like a weird Americanization element. I just thought, what, what more American way to kill a doctor than just to have a machine gun down by a gang? 
you know, why why not do the master kind of like the Terminator? <laughs> In retrospect, that doesn't bother me so much, but at the time it was like, oh, they're trying to be so American with it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind the American take. I think Eric Roberts seems honestly drunk through most of this movie. I think I recall some interview with him where like his agent said like you have to take this because it's going to be like a big franchise thing and wow. he, he like never like got it or understood it at all really and it I, comes across in his performance yeah. <laughs> i think I, I think i had read that the casting person was his wife oh, <laughs> it's actually, no it gets worse <laughs> she casts herself as Eric Roberts, ambulance driver guy, whatever his name was, Bruce. wife. So oh, she's no. in the bed with him. The beginning gets oh. got cast herself as getting murdered. You should check that for sure. But <laughs> I, I think, and and I also read somewhere that it's a great rumor to start. Even if it's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, I don't care. It's a podcast. Um, Let's do a lot of armchair psychology. <laughs> I think <laughs> part of the problem with Eric uh, too. Like I, I like Eric Roberts. He's all right. I mean, I don't love him or anything, but and I thought he did an okay job being this guy. But my standards are pretty low. Let's be clear. <laughs> and at, there's a scene where he tears off his fingernail, like throws it. He's in the hospital, and they had written something where he was going to slowly kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. And who knows if that was his brain as well? Mm-hmm. But then they they write that out again. This this mishmash Frankenstein way they made this this script. Um, that that gets dropped at some point. So the poor guy, who knows what he was even told given yeah. the, any scene, like. Guess what's happening now? You're melting, and and then they don't yeah. do the effects, or who I knows? had read, and again, could be a total rumor, that Eric Roberts objected to the makeup time it took. Oh, that he didn't want to so deal with the, this stuff of his face melting off, and he had a problem with it. Interesting. And wrote it out. That is correct, by the way. According to IMDb, okay. Eliza Roberts was the casting director on this movie, and she does play his wife. Yeah. What's interesting is she was like, yeah. you should be the master. I'll be in bed with you. Then kill me. <laughs> kill me, yeah. Just like we do every night. <laughs> you know, looking back on it from the perspective of the new series, this completely accidentally is the first prefiguration we get of that psychosexual element of the master's character because he murders his wife and later on the John Sim character will have this abusive relationship with Mrs. Saxon Sure. Mm -hmm. and here Eric Roberts has this uh, kind of sexually aggressive forced kiss with oh, Grace yeah. at the That's, end when she, uh, oh, yeah. when he uh, takes the very unattractive the, the, the KY jelly snake out of yes. her, <laughs> whatever's <laughs> in her somehow. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think that was just sort of the kind of slightly sadistic. Uh, slightly sexist uh, approach that Fox TV was probably doing with a lot of their dramas at the time. But now, in retrospect, it seems like it's got, a, yeah. got some continuity, a through-line <laughs> character yeah, of our I recent mean, master. It's, it's true. I don't know why, but he kind of reminds me of Lou Reed. Yeah, it's the sunglasses. <laughs> the sunglasses and the black mm-hmm. leather jacket, jacket or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, and I when mean, you sing Street Hassle for ten minutes... <laughs> All right, so my special topic, Dalek, is, as we get very close, I I think we're maybe weeks, maybe a month or so away from a new companion announcement in the uh, continuing seasons with Capaldi's Doctor. If the three of you could choose a companion, who would it be? They could be an old companion returning, someone new. If so, what would they be like? Or does he go it alone for the season? Like, what do you want to see as a little matchup? I think Clara was kind of controversial, and so we need to mix it up a little bit. So, like, what what would you do? Craig Ferguson. 
That would be kind of awesome. Uh, vote from Tony for Craig Ferguson. <laughs> I have a lot of elements of companions that I would like to see. They wouldn't all necessarily have to be the same companion. So, like, for example, I would like to see uh, more people of color as companions. Sure. We've uh, had a lot of... Martha was uh, was black, but for the most part, the companions have been, have been pretty white. So I'd like to see some more of that. I'd like to see a man as a companion, because I always really enjoyed the dynamic between, uh, say, Patrick Troughton and Jamie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that Peter Capaldi is a more action-oriented doctor than Patrick Troughton is, but that it doesn't preclude uh, a male-male relationship like that. So I'd like to see that happen. I'd like to see a companion from either a different period in Earth's history or from an alien planet, planet completely. We used to have Leela and Ramana back in the day, but like no new series people. No, I mean, right? R- River's a little weird in that regard, but she's still. Rory was an Auton sort of. Yeah. I'm with you. The aliens. I'd love to have the alien companion back, or robot, robot or alien, or both. I don't care. Robot alien. Yeah. And I think we've touched on this in a previous podcast, but I think the benefit of having either a male companion or an alien companion is that. Uh, you could sidestep the need for the companion and the doctor to be equals. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to navigate these gender politics when it's the doctor and a woman. And the classic companion combination is that this is a you know however many he is now twelve hundred year old time lord. He's probably the the alpha member of the team. Um, <laughs> in that you could have more of a mentor relationship like you had with uh, the seventh doctor and ace might be interesting to mm-hmm. see. I, of course, also would like to see Peter Capaldi with a gaggle of schoolchildren. <laughs> I thought that's what the direction they were going at one point. Maybe it's because that first season they were writing him so abrasive toward Clara, mm-hmm. but you can't do that with young people companions to the same degree that they had to dial it back and make him more a kind of avuncular, goofy figure, and that was refreshing at the time. Now that they've dialed his character back to be a little more mellow, maybe it's not as necessary. It would still be fun if he took a whole class trip somewhere. <laughs> Something was wrong with the TARDIS, and for the whole season, he's just got it. He's leading a field trip of death. <laughs> but, yeah, could you imagine oh, that if he had, like, eight kids, it'd be wonderful to see uh, the writers try to deploy them. Yeah. Like, okay, well, you need to go over there. You two need to get captured. And yeah. You drive the bus. You. Yeah. He is a doctor that you could see having like the, the Baker Street Irregulars kind of thing, where he would he would use all of their strengths. I'd love that he'd have a little Doc Savage team made yep. out of little kids. Well, this kid's a really good electrician, and this is the smallest little girl, so she could climb through the vents. <laughs> It'd be like that old Infocom yes. game, Suspended, yes. right, where you had the one oh, robot yeah. that was really tall and the one. Ro- okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> That was a deep cut. (laughs) (laughs) From Kelvin. Yeah, yeah. You got any more thoughts about this, Kelvin? You haven't. I, you know, I, I, I just honestly don't know what what to say. I mean, I know a lot of people who like didn't really like Claire at all, and basically they either want to see like a, a second version of Ace or a second version of Donna. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but it, it, in a way, it seems kind of predictable. In like a grizzled ex space <laughs> with an eye patch and a cannon for a left arm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying no. <laughs> but I think he should just take his guitar and just talk to his guitar. <laughs> Maybe he could take handles and somehow put the circuitry into the guitar, so he's got kind of like a robot guitar. Oh, now we're done. Nice. Or we could go back to like that, like. 
the the classically crazy Tom Baker idea where at one point he wanted his companion to be a talking cabbage. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. I've never heard that story. Yeah. Well, 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 basically, it, it was going to be like some little weird alien puppet thing that would like sit on his shoulder. I mean, and, just and, and, like like an alien pet thing that could talk, and he would like have conversations with it. And he would, you know, describe it as like kind of a talking cabbage. And uh, it gives you some sense of the value he ascribed to Louise Jameson and Mary Tam, and yeah, yeah. or his marriage to Lala Wood. Yeah. <laughs> well, at, at one point, he also really wanted his uh, companion to be like a, a an old woman. Which they've done in the audience. Like an elderly woman. Yeah. Well, I guess Evelyn was an elderly elderly. She was... She was in her late 50s, maybe early 60s. That's not... Like elderly. us. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Round five. <laughs> yeah. All right. Round five, guys. Arcs of Infinity. We are going to be talking about the Doom Coalition 8 Doctor Big Finish box set and these are four kind of interconnected and kind of standalone stories they represent the newest eighth doctor stories out there okay i guess they just released doom coalition too but it's still part of <laughs> just, damn it since you were talking they've released doom coalition three and four <laughs> it's new ish and so this is Paul McGann as the Eighth Doctor, Nicola Walker as Liv Chenka, and they introduce a brand new companion, Helen Sinclair. I got the Verity vibe off she, of her. She was intended to be like an homage to Verity, okay. Lambert, sort of. I didn't get that, but I see it. Yeah, now. she's from the early sixties. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, you know, sort of proto-feminist woman, tired of like not being taken seriously by men. And, I, I, and having ter- terrible career difficulties. I, I guess I just assumed that was the common status of women <laughs> that period. And oh, 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 the chicks loved it back then. <laughs> Let like, me tell you. No, I mean, but yeah, yeah, she was kind of meant to be. Okay. Verity Lambert. Well, I get it now. Yeah. So it's four stories. Four stories introducing um, a new villain for the Eighth Doctor and. Previously, the seventh doctor is the eleven. The which one, two, is... three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. <laughs> no, the eleven is to give us a little background here. It has has basically Time Lord schizophrenia. Is that all of his re- eleven regenerations are somehow in the same body at the same time? Almost all psychopathic, except eight. Eight, who's like the nice one. Who's kind of trapped in here with all these monsters? And and there's like one who just like yells, basically yells, "Kill!" all the time. And then and there was one that kind of stuttered and was sort of weirdly timid and mousy. And then there's one that's Jimmy Savile. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really interesting concept, and it sort of differentiates him from essentially being another master. Uh, yeah. Yep. And the performance is is really good. But the the box that follows the escape. Uh, sort of Hannibal Lecter-style escape from Gallifrey of the Eleven, um, and a trap he sets for the Eighth Doctor, and the Eighth Doctor um, and companions pursue him through these four stories. And so maybe instead of discussing all four stories in any great detail, if we want to just talk about the, the big moments we liked or yeah. our favorite of the four stories? or Yeah, well, quick, uh, there's the initial The Eleven uh, by Matt Fitton, the Red Lady by John Dorney, The Galileo Trap by Mark Platt, who's an old name mm-hmm. in Doctor Who, and The Satanic Mill by Edward Collier. Yeah, I, I particularly liked Matt Fitton's inaugural story. It's set on Gallifrey. Um, it's obviously got a lot of continuity elements that I'm not 
completely familiar with because they're specific to Big Finish, but they talk about uh, Romana and they talk about some of the Gallifreyan history recently. There's a cameo by Sylvester McCoy and a mention of Temporal Grace and the Mind Pro. <laughs> yes. yes. So clearly Big Finish has been listening to our podcast. Yep. <laughs> I really enjoyed this box set a lot, probably more than the last couple War Doctor ones we talked about. Um, I thought this the scripts were a lot better. I thought the worst script here is still fairly competent, which is probably the last one. I think the Satanic yeah. Bell is sort of a... Totally a, a, agree. It's yeah. like, super awesome, super awesome, super awesome. Okay, my, my standards again were low. And then I get to the third one, it's like, bleh. It's just bland, really. Yeah, it's uh, just sort of yeah, another bunch of oppressed workers. Yeah, so there's no particular reason why they needed to have the Dickensian factories... So it's a, I actually like that that part because he says it was just to uh, elicit an emotional response from from the doctor. <laughs> okay, well, that's, that's fair. It's a huge space I, station that's literally powered by just Dickensian factory drudgery. And, and just the convoluted yeah. um, pettiness of that appealed to me. <laughs> Only from a villain this insane could we get this plot and be like, okay. Because I was just like, the master would never do this. This is too that's gonzo. Saying, that's saying a lot. <laughs> this is too gonzo for the master. Like, I'll admit I sort of did like the uh, gormangastic yeah. uh, <laughs> size of the factory and just like, the workers are literally born <laughs> Out of clone vats, work themselves to death in a, power, day. In a day, powering the village. It is a, sort of a, a blunt but effective satire on, the, especially the industrial revolution, but also like my day job. <laughs> so. There just wasn't enough there to fill out the fifty-minute running time. I, I agree. Uh, a lot of great fun ideas. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think the one that. Jumped out at me as my favorite was probably the Red Lady. Yeah, mine too. Same yeah. Yeah. Felt like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Well, yeah, the super insane thing of the blind art collector who somehow only collects art that's never been displayed anywhere. <laughs> Which is like, what? I also thought the script did a really good job at, at pacing out the information, so it moved really nicely. Exactly. It was an investigative story, which is why I say it's like a Call of Cthulhu scenario. Like, something creepy is happening. We investigate it further, and we find out, we peel back one layer of the onion, and then we peel back another one, and then, oh, oh now we're overwhelmed by forces of ancient evil. <laughs> Although here they get away because it's Doctor Who and not a Lovecraft story. Yes, they don't go blithering insane. I really love the Eleven. But it's really confusing when the Eleven shows up because you don't know... Is Wait, is this the Eleven or is this some other character talking? Because he has Eleven voices. <laughs> and they're not really well established except for the super brutal guy who just yells kill and, <laughs> and Eight who's like weirdly kind. They layer in an audio yeah. sound when those voices are talking to each other to yeah. sort of give you that cue. This is going to sound like a criticism. I really don't mean it to be one. but uh, A criticism on a podcast? Yeah, but <laughs> Outrageous. The eighth doctor is, is by far the most even-keeled doctor. Oh, yes, well, that happened, you know, kind of doctor. So sometimes I would not pick up on Paul McGann's voice because I thought he sounded a little too much like yeah. Cardinal Patrick. Was that his name? Yeah. Uh, I'm Cardinal Patrick. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I forget or, or the character. A drag or something. Yeah, I, I forget the name of the character, but I. I it was think almost right. Patrick. Yeah. I thought throughout there was sort of uh, unusual for Big Finish. I was finding it hard to discriminate between voices sometimes. Yeah, I, I, which I, 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 I mean, Liv and Helen, I was having a problem. 
especially in the Satanic. They movie. got really mm-hmm. samey sounding actors somehow. Yeah, they did, and that's not usually a problem for Big Finish, but here for some reason I was, um, it was kind of a problem. I also thought that I, I couldn't get a fix on their relationship because between Helen and Liv in The Red Lady and the Galileo Trap, they seem fairly simpatico and they seem to get mm-hmm. along pretty well. And also in the Satanic Mill, they're bitching and moaning at each other all the time. Yeah, it didn't get. Yeah, it does get ratchet up a little. I guess I just figured it was they had to be in this workhouse and make soup or do laundry or whatever. They're just getting on each other's nerves. I guess I didn't really notice. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it, it's within the realm of the characters, I guess. But for me, it seemed abrupt. Yeah, I would say overall, I really enjoyed this box set, and I'm anxious to hear the next well, one. Well, I my final thought on this box set is that I was very pleased that they referenced the line from the deadly assassin that sounded like something out of the Old Testament. They're talking about the Matrix. Paul McGann says it here again in the Satanic Mill. Neither flux nor wither nor change its state in any way. Which rung such a bell when I heard it. I'm like, is that like Ecclesiastes or something? But I Google it, it's Robert Holmes for the yep. Deadly Assassin. So awesome! I um, did not catch that. Yeah, it's 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 a deep cut too. Um, and he's such a grumpy literary critic. He complains in the Red Lady that discretion is the better part of valor is a misquotation from Shakespeare, and it's not what Shakespeare intended. <laughs> <laughs> which is also which is also true. <laughs> Soul bleeders is that metaphorical? And altogether, they go, no. <laughs> that was awesome. Those were good lines. Yeah. I was going to mention that the Galileo Trap is an unusually conventional story for Mark Platt. It was usually full of yeah. interesting, I kind forgot of that bright, Mark bright sparks of ideas, but there wasn't much. I have there. to admit, there was big chunks of the, the Galileo Trap that only made sense to me when I when I went on the TARDIS wiki. Yeah, <laughs> and kind of looked it up a little bit, like, oh, the his daughter is not really his daughter. Yeah, the there there are aliens entertaining this Italian count by. Releasing alien animals for him to hunt. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on there. And I'm like, oh. And they're just killing time waiting for the doctor to show up. Yeah. I, yeah, and I thought the, Some weird the, the stone LP was supposed to be from ancient Greece in the last. Yeah. I don't know, you guys. The, the one problem I did have with those, yeah, he makes this tablet and then they play it right at the end of the Red Lady, but I could not you tell not. what the hell they were saying. Absolutely not. I was like, yeah. and clearly the actors didn't know what was played. They just ran with it, like, oh, it's a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, 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 no one knows what was just on that record. <laughs> right. Your translator failed. <laughs> like, they're, they're trying to evoke, like, early wax cylinder recordings, but even cruder than that. I want another edit where you can go back in and put whatever you want. Like it's like early Robert Johnson recordings. <laughs> Me and the devil. <laughs> That's a story I want to see. Is the doctor go back and see Ooh, Robert Johnson? Robert Johnson could yeah. be the new companion. <laughs> I would be into that. I seriously would. It's the dope. doctor goes into like the, the the deep south and the Great Depression and just. Hangs out with old bluesmen. And saves Robert Johnson from the devil. Yeah, he's at the crossroads totally. and the TARDIS materializes. Oh, yes. now I want to see it. <laughs> totally a story. Oh, my God. Doesn't that turn into the old In Living Colors sketch where I wrote a song about it? <laughs> here, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Doom Coalition was good, but this is awesome. <laughs> That's our show, listeners. Thank you so much. My old co-worker, Brian Schomburg. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Ah, we're going to have you back, and I hope you remain our number one fan. I will try. Even though, yeah, now you've seen how the sausage is made. 
No, I still, still love the sausage. I don't like where this is going. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I'm generally pro sausage. I think sausage is one of the great foods and that a mankind has evolved. That's why you have sausage, the great food.com that you administer, right? <laughs> so many websites just gathering dust out there. It's, it's, I haven't been updated. You really there. should sell some of those URLs. <laughs> I got a whopping 10 bucks out of that. So, uh, yeah, that's our show. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Get Off My World. I'm Pat. I'm Brian. I'm Kelvin. I'm Joshua. And we're saying... Get off my world. So all of these cells of uh, Algerian nationalists spread out through the deserts of, of in- interior Algeria could get information from pirate radio stations and not from French-controlled media, and they could coordinate guerrilla operations wow. along with it. Yeah. Interesting stuff, Indeed. am I right? <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? Algerian War of Independence? I think that we should do a spin-off podcast. <laughs> Get off my Algeria. You're listening to another episode of Pat's Tangents. I've been working on a book about war games for the past three years. I expect you to talk about it. Oh, those guys. Oh, we get real mics. It's time for the cool late night DJ boys. <laughs> Welcome to Get Off My World. <laughs> Our guest tonight is Brian Boom Boom Schomburg. Boom Boom. <laughs> <laughs> boom.